Hello, my name is Natalia Fedorchuk, and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I am joined by Anthony Bourdain, conflict zone and war journalist. Bourdain founded and reported for the Institute of War and Peace Reporting and has worked for the organization's highly regarded journal, War Report, to report on the Yugoslav wars and other conflicts. He has both edited and written for Harper's, Harper's Collins, and other newspapers and magazines, as well as contributed to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Guardian. Bourdain works for the UK government's Department of International Development to assess media programs in post-communist countries. Thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be here. For our first question, how do you feel that the event was able to reflect the work that you do on a daily basis? And is there anything else about your work that you'd like to add or reflect on? Hi, it's a pleasure to be here, and it was a pleasure to attend the event. It was an opportunity for me to pull back and really reflect on the work in a sort of long narrative stream that I usually don't actually take the time to do. So mm -hmm. that was really uh, intriguing, uh, useful, and I hope it was of interest. Definitely. I know that the students here really enjoyed it. I see that there's a consistency in your career focused around Eastern Europe, like reporting in areas regarding the Yugoslav War, Ukraine, um, plus assessing media programs in post-communist countries for the UK government. And I would like to ask, what about this region has a draw to you as a reporter, and why? That's a really interesting question. I probably could reflect on that more. We do have global programs. I've been fortunate to travel and work a bit in Africa and Latin America, a little bit in Asia, not so much personally, but the organization. But yes, it's true, Eastern Europe, former communist countries have been a strong draw for us and, and for me as well. I think for a couple of reasons. I think that the societies are transformative. They have very strong and educated populations, but lots of governance challenges and democracy and freedom challenges. So it's sort of a, a, a real crucible of, of our kind of work, strengthening local voices, which have a lot of capacity and need some assistance. I have to say that I have background, in fact, from the territory of Ukraine as well, and Poland, and that's not a driver, but it is of an interest. I think it is true that if you have a connection to a place, it does draw you, there's no question about it. But it's also true that it's, it's wonderful to travel to Africa, spend a lot of time in the Middle East, so they're all challenging and intriguing. But yeah, there's, there's something that feels quite uh, um, familiar in a certain way, yeah. especially in Ukraine, I have to say. And what would you say are some general noteworthy findings that you have assessed thus far in post-Soviet Eastern Europe regarding media programs and the quality of transparent media in your United Kingdom government work? Hmm. Uh, look, first of all, I would be uh, generous not to say that a lot of our work is funded by Western government uh, agencies, development agencies, and it's, I think, important that people realize, as they may not, mm -hmm that Western governments do fund human rights programming, freedom of expression programming, and it's vital. It's vital support, it's vital commitments. They don't control the content, but they do believe in the need, and it's part of the broader efforts to support democracies uh, around the world and emerging democracies. The societies under communism face a lot of troubles in terms of transitioning from the concept of a central controlled state mm -hmm. to active civil society and true freedoms. But you also have the particular problem here in Ukraine, and you've had it also in the Balkans, particularly of nationalist leaders really with a specific program to exploit history and hatred in order to fuel bloodshed, war, and, and potentially genocide. So that's a, that's a really specific problem. 
And these problems really escalate problems of social transformation which are large enough. What do you feel that the American mass media, especially the news, is getting wrong about the war in Ukraine and how can this be amended? That's a good question. Also, uh, one of the first things I would really be keen to underline and also having uh, not only worked in an organization that supports local media but spent some time as a journalist there, you know, I'm hesitant to criticize. Journalists are out there, they're putting lives at risk, they're, they're working well and hard, and um, a lot of the mainstream media are really doing important work. Uh, Times is committing a lot of resources, the Post is committing a lot of resources, any journalist who's in the field is taking a risk and doing, doing what they can, and it's, it's vital. And I think that's reflected in general support for Ukraine uh, in Europe and the United States. So I think it's, it's a positive, absolutely. We, I would also say that as part of the long sweep of the work of groups like ourselves, and, and there are others, to build local voices, I think that appreciation of the importance of local voices is established and is more important. So you will find a lot of collaboration between international media and Ukrainian voices, and I just think the more of that, the better, the more um, deeper stories, longer form stories, and also highlighting Ukrainian voices that they can, that they can provide is, is a benefit. What major shifts or events have you detected that stick out to you in Ukraine during the war, with you having actually been there to see it? And then, do you feel that you were able to properly communicate these shifts or major events or changes in the war's direction in your work, or is there kind of a restriction a little bit mm. in what you're saying? No, I, I uh, look, the main episodes of the war are what we know, February 24th, uh, the withdrawal from the Kiev suburbs and the, the discovery of the atrocities, the rolling conflict in the east, now the pushback. I have been around at different points for some of that, not all of it. One of the things I've certainly seen is that journalism is actually a collective endeavor. No individual story can tell the whole tale for his or her own medium, and no medium can tell the whole story for the world. This is a major historical event of profound dimensions and proportions, and it really takes the collection of all media in order to contribute to it. And I think it's best to have that sense of modesty in terms of what one can contribute. Um, I remember very much spending several days in the suburbs and I found myself spending an entire day writing a story about one child who'd been killed in the collapse of, of a building. And I did speak to my editor and it's not that the loss is not a tragedy, but it's, it's one death among many, many, many deaths. And um, uh, she assured me, and I think it was the right choice, that one death is, is important, but it also shows the meaning and the power and the, and the tragedy of it. So you, you can't cover the collective, you can focus on the specific, and it's through the aggregation of all that content that you can really grasp the full scale of what's going on. In regards to the content of the last two questions, do you feel that with all of the atrocities that are going on and the war crimes that are going on, there is a censorship that is kind of required by American media, especially televised? Yes. You know, you're touching on a really sensitive question. We spoke about it with some of the professors over, over uh, our discussion before the event. And it's a very strong balance for journalism. Do you reveal the full scale of the atrocities directly and therefore bring the horror to the living room? Or do you mask it in some kind of way because it is the living room and because people have to get on in their life? And I think that's about editorial judgment. Um, so I wouldn't 
picture of face of a dead body, uh, but bleak images and so on and so forth. Are, I, I think you can write it. I don't always have to show it, I would say. But it, I think it is also true, and this is one of the, the concerns, the story has now been around for some time. The atrocities that are being revealed now in the East as these towns and villages are being revealed are larger than those that had been discovered around the, uh, the Keep suburbs, but they're making less an impact because we are just inured to it. We are just now used to it. Oh yes, more and more. Mm -hmm. So there is that risk, and this has political implications because it's really a driver in the conflict of the Ukrainians where some in the West may, may be getting a little bit tired of the war. So I think those choices are editorial choices and subjective ones and not easy ones, and, and I have to say some get it right and some don't. It's true that war gore is off-putting, and um, a lot of the Russian media is, is really very meant to play on the emotion. So I, I think um, some discretion is a valuable tool and, um, and inevitable. Would you say that with the restriction of images, because of the fast turnover rate with the internet and because of so much of what you do being on Twitter and kind of that information being overtaken by new trends and information, not putting in images or descriptions that are graphic into your work, would you say that could kind of result in a loss of impact for like the general American? Well, we, we have, um, you, you pointed out, raised an important, very important point is that um, we used to say that journalism is the first draft of history. Now it's the draft 1.5 because social media is now the first draft. Social media is faster than journalism. Social media has images uh, relayed by individuals on the bomb site where the shell landed within, within seconds. Mm. And then the journalist's job is to arrive, report, verify, confirm, filter, and then publish. Um, and, and, and even the journalist might be using social media and then the newspaper may take the next day. So there are steps of, of, of processing. Those steps are, um, can be frustrating because they seem to be slow. They're necessary because they're part of verification. They're part about they're what's the, what they are, what makes journalism a professional function. Um, and it's true that not everything that you will see in public uh, collection will be true as such because there can be manipulation and so on. But in general, I think you see it. And I think in general, if one wants to online, on Twitter, on Telegram channels and so on, there's an awful lot of material available if the, if the viewer wishes to find it. With what you had mentioned earlier about Russian images playing to the emotions more than American images, you would say? Or like well, what I was referring to is, um, you know, I could almost put it like this. If you've ever, um, you probably haven't, but if you've ever played one of these war video games and you put in a quarter and you're being shot at and you're running down a pathway and there's a little dramatic music and you've got the image of the, of the joystick and there's fire all over the place and it's a very heated feeling as you play mm -hmm. that video game. This is really what Russian war journalism is like. Mm -hmm. This is the way they record it. This is the way they present it. They try to make the viewer in Russia feel the fear, the energy, the drama, the kind of like it's some sort of um, under attack game. They really build and play the emotions for their audience. They're trying to stoke the, the, the flames of war and, and, and war fever through their coverage. This is very negative. It's aside from all the factual distortions of the way history is presented, the, um, the imagery and the way that imagery is used for manipulative emotional reasons is really what I'm, what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. And this is, it's, it's really um, stressing 
it's, it's really, you can't watch it for long. You get, it plays on your emotions in a very direct and immediate way. I'm curious about that point because I'm curious about where the line of disinformation is crossed when it comes to censorship. Because one might argue that showing graphic and visual descriptions is less censoring mm -hmm. and therefore does not allow any room for mistaken even uh, yeah. misinformation. Yeah, yeah. But in the same breath, Russian misinformation about the war in Ukraine is obviously very well known. Great, great, great points. There's really a, a, a distinction between these terms. So um, disinformation mm. is specific, orchestrated, incorrect or malinformation for a purpose. So that's propaganda, that's lies, that's twisted distortion mm -hmm. purposefully uh, produced in an emotional and uh, manipulative way in order to create an objective. That's what we're talking about, disinformation. Misinformation can be a mistake. If I publish something as a journalist and it's wrong, if I take a picture uh, and say all of these people are fleeing and in fact they're, they're arriving, they're not fleeing, that's misinformation, that's incorrect. It's, right. it's a problem, but it's an error. Um, and and, and that, that's another category. But the, the third category really is editorial discretion and judgment. That's mm -hmm. a whole other thing. A newspaper has a right to have its, have its choices. Um, we, I covered this up, keep suburbs for several days, and then we sort of decided that was enough for us. Right. That wasn't censorship, that was just an editorial judgment. So it's, it's a gradation. Not everything is disinformation. Right. Disinformation is really purposefully uh, lying and, and, and um, or distorting reality for the purposes of your political objectives. There is the use of, we saw it way back in the Balkans all those years ago, uh, you, would have a, um, you would have a scene of killed civilians and uh, the Serbian TV would air it and say, these are dead Serbs. And the Croatian TV would air the same photograph and say, these are dead Croats. Well, mm -hmm. every, you just feel very sad for the poor dead bodies who's, who have become a political, political pawn, basically, in, in, a, in a war of words. So that's the disinformation. So one of the really crucial factors we didn't get to speak about last night so much is what to do about all this problem. Right. And there's a number of factors. Uh, I think it's, it's complex. It involves government and it, calls, it includes industry, including the social media and, and, and the Silicon Valley firms. It includes the media in particular, but it also includes the individual consumer. And I would even say the universities and educational uh, organization establishment. Media literacy is really important. Becoming a critical consumer of what you read, having multiple sources, forcing yourself to listen to other viewpoints, not receiving everything immediately, not tweeting a response immediately, all of these things which, which the new tools allow us to do, but they're not intellectually useful. They're not really positive things. So slowing down, being thoughtful, being critical, and being very self-aware, mm -hmm. and, and using your own mental critical filters. This is really critical, this is essential, and I think this kind of media literacy, as a brilliant college student, you, know, you, you take it um, in your stride, you're learning these facilities, but I think this is a really a, a major requirement uh, among the population. And to your point about Russian war imagery, I know that many other people and news outlets have made it clear, at least in America, that in Kiev, up until maybe a couple of days ago, life was generally kind of in some stride of normal. Um, so I'm kind of wondering, when you go outside of Kiev, 
into areas that maybe are under attack or have recently been under attack and how you go about finding housing necessities kind of just in those conflict zones, transport, how that's kind of arranged. Yes, yes. Ukraine is curiously, and I think even still, a rather benign environment as a journalist in which to work. Uh, your risk is significant. If a bomb lands on your head, you will not survive it. But the likelihood of that is very low. So the calculation of the risk set is deemed rather comfortable for most, because even, even in Kiev, it's a very large city and you uh, died. And in general, the shells, especially recently, have not been falling right throughout the country. Journalists do not have a death wish. Um, they're quite professional about it. They know what they're doing. So in general, when you go to an area, you've planned your story, you know what you're trying to get, you've thought about it. I work with a team one way or another, uh, usually a friend, a fixer, a colleague. I'm always working, uh, as, as all international journalists will be in different levels, with, uh, with local uh, journalists, or they're called a fixer or a translator. Local knowledge is your single biggest safety factor. It's nice to have somebody from the military advising you and, and a flak jacket and all the rest, but the single biggest safety factor is to be there with somebody who knows today what's going on, is very hyper-connected. And literally, I've been with Ukrainian colleagues who say, well, we will walk through that street and we will not go across that street. The, the, the risk factor is to that line. And I've pressed them and they said no. But that's because they are quite aware of the scene and the risk levels. And, and that's really, to me, the most important thing. And if you're going really closer to the front lines, generally, when I've done it, I've plotted it, gone for a limited period, gotten our, our reporting, and then, then stepped back. So. You, you get a credit for taking a lot of brave risks, but you're really being very calculating and very careful. You have a threat. You're not uh, trying to be... You're really trying to get a story. Right. You're not trying to prove that you're brave. You're really trying to experience... I do think it's vital to try to do that because there are people there. It's important to be witnessing with them, and that is a really important part of the story. But it, it doesn't require all the time um, the presence in, in these dangerous areas. And uh, just finally to what you were saying, yes, everything from the hotel where you select and so forth, again, depending, I depend very much on local journalists and others who have a good awareness of where things um, lie. We also have a security advisory firm, as many journalists will, so you're, there's a lot of conversations going on. Okay, I see. And my last question kind of ties into what you had just mentioned, kind of about how you and your organization handle threats to safety especially in a place like Ukraine where, you know, there's always a risk of an airstrike and kind of areas of Ukraine specifically outside of safer zones like Kiev where there is absolutely no, like, assurance yeah. that you are yeah. safe. Yeah. Well, we underline that there's no story that's worth the life. Right. It just isn't. And if you're dead, you can't file. <laughs> so it's, it's always a, it's, it's an ever-present discussion. And uh, all I can say is that uh, safety and security is, is a constant issue and concern. Uh, as I just outlined, um, any trip is rather plotted. It's, look, it's <laughs> the journalist is always very frustrated with the Home Office. The Home Office is trying to say, where are you going? What's next? And the journalist says, well, I don't know. I'll get there and I'll find out. Because when you're on the ground, you're, you're, you're led by your nose, by your instinct, by what you feel. So there is that tension point. 
of, uh, you know, oh, I do it too, go dark a bit, don't, uh, or another email, I don't have the time for the email, I'm actually doing my work. So there is that tension point, you can't be 100% safe. As I've said, it's, it's adult entertainment, it's, it's not risk-free, you know, you sign your, you don't sign your waiver, but you sign your um, mental waiver. But to me, the occasions, and I'm claiming nothing because I have not done it as much as many have, you're serving witness to history, and you're serving witness to the extremities of human suffering and endurance. So this is important, and it's also an honor to, to get to witness it, to speak to people about it, and frankly to write it. Mm-hmm. As a writer or a producer of media, you want to produce content that has power and, and it's powerful. On behalf of the Clark Forum, thank you again for sitting down and having this conversation with me. And thank you for your lecture yesterday. <laughs> <laughs>